Good morning, everyone. We are in Hebrews chapter 8. So if uh, you can turn there if you'd like. Uh, we'll be covering this whole chapter this morning. Um, if any of you are ever wondering, like, why in the world are we studying Hebrews? Like, what's the point of, of this? What, why are we doing this? Um, it's actually in verse 1. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. And so that's the point of why we're here. But just to kind of give you a, a lay of the land as to why, a lot of times Christians are really focused on what we do and that we're doing good, which is something we are to do. It, it is an evidence of our relationship with God. But sometimes we get too stuck on that and that that is all we're about. And if that's the case, then what's the distinguishing factor between a Christian and somebody who's just a humanitarian or a philanthropist. And so this is kind of the depth and richness that we're going to have to delve deeper into in regards to theology and namely Christology uh, when we're studying about Jesus Christ because this is the, the deeper work. This is more of the spiritual deeper work as to who we are and why we do what we do and what, why we believe what we believe. And so that's why we study these sorts of things um, in terms of getting under those uh, layers of just being covered up with busyness or doing. And so just that as a background, I want to point us back to chapter 7, verse 26, and, um, and this point that the author is writing about actually starts there and it goes through chapter 10. And so in chapter 7, verse 26, it starts by this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And the reason why the author is writing all of this, kind of apologetic of Christ, is that these people were struggling with the idea of why don't we need a high priest anymore? Because we've had one for generations. And if we do still need a high priest, because we do, because we are still sinful people, then can this Jesus be that for us? And so the author is writing, yes, yes, this is indeed uh, our high priest, an eternal, everlasting high priest. And then he uses chapters 8 and 9 to reinforce this point that Jesus Christ is indeed superior to anything else that can act as an intercessor, intercessory, interceding person. I don't know, what word, whatever that word is. Yeah. And so, can that indeed be true? And so you look at chapters 5 and on, and he's been building this case about the superiority of Jesus Christ and that he's more superior than angels because they're in their heads thinking like, oh, angels are pretty powerful. Uh, is Jesus even that? And so, yes, Jesus is, chapter 5. And then he goes on, is Jesus indeed like a, a great prophet? Can he even do that? And, and, the, and the writer's like, yes, I'm going to give you an example. Moses, he's the greatest prophet and he's greater than him. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to show you that he's even greater than Abraham, the father of our faith. And they're like, what? 
even greater than Abraham? And then not only is he greater than Abraham, he's greater than the guy that's greater than Abraham. Like who, in, who in the world can be greater than Abraham? And he makes an argument, Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham. Therefore, he's the greatest high priest and greater than Abraham because he's the one giving blessing. And he makes an argument for that. That was, that was chapter 7. So he's layering all of these arguments. He's better than, he's more superior than any angel, more superior than any prophet, more superior than any... Um, father of our faith, more superior than any high priest. He's greater than all of those people. And so he's laying this all out. Now when we turn, into, turn to Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this in, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The author of Hebrews is re-emphasizing the superiority of Jesus Christ because the people at that time were struggling with the belief of who Jesus Christ is. And I think that's happening in our world today, that we are really struggling to believe who Jesus Christ is because we have questions like this. Is Jesus Christ enough to take care of all the injustices in the world? We have all these wars. Is he enough to bring about peace to our world? I'm struggling with whatever you're struggling with, finances, health, um, broken relationships, whatever it is. Is Jesus Christ enough? Because if he is, then why am I dealing with all of these things? And so what this is bringing us back to is looking at, is Jesus enough? Do we really believe that he is superior to anyone else out there that can help me? to anything that can help me. Do I really believe that? Because if you don't, there's a huge likelihood that you're going to grow weary in your faith in regards to who Jesus Christ is. You're going to grow tired of it. Now fast forward to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, and this is what the author tells us. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's warning us about this. If, you, if this is all you're considering of these external things, you're going to grow tired of it. You have to remember who Jesus Christ is and the superiority of Christ over every other thing. Continuing on in verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 8. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the author is pointing, the, the, pointing to us readers to fix our gaze on Jesus Christ. Because anything else, anyone else, is going to be a poor substitute for that. Because even if you have the greatest high priest to ever exist on the planet, he's still mortal. That person still dies. Jesus is the only one who's eternal. And we read that Jesus is seated in verse 1. Why is that significant? Because in the Old Testament, you'll notice the priest never sat down. The priest never sat down because their work was never done. They always had something to do. They had to always continuously, year after year, offer sacrifices, first for themselves, for their sins, and then for other people. So their job was never done. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ who made this sacrificial system, this shadow of 
the reality that he brings in, he makes that obsolete because the reality of Jesus' own sacrifice would stand for eternity because it was a perfect sacrifice. It wasn't something that he, we have to do over and over again. When someone receives reality, lives in it, occupies it, is there any point in living in those shadows anymore? If you receive the perfect sacrifice to cover all sin, why is there ever a need to go back to this sacrificial system to offer a lamb or a turtle dove or whatever it is? If this is already done, why go back? Now, one of the issues that some people have with Christ is that he's not physically here. That he's not tangible like these shadows, like these sacrifices, these shadowy ways of doing these things. But it is in his absence that it was absolutely necessary to usher in the kingdom the way God had designed it. And so we read here that Jesus Christ sits on the throne, which means it's finished. It's done. The work is complete. This is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, if there was still this tangible high priest, wouldn't that be proof that the high priest is not one for everlasting? Christ left so that the Holy Spirit can be everywhere, so that he can occupy space in each one of our spirits. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. To know Christ personally. Not at a distance, but to know God. Jesus Christ, God who made himself known to us. And that was what needed to happen for that intimacy to develop. Verse 2. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now you notice that the Lord set this up. It wasn't man who set this up. And it's important to realize that God established all of this, and it wasn't something created by people. That this true tent that is referred to is contrasting the shadow of the heavenly things which, with the actual heavenly things. And so this is written about in verse 5. We'll cover that in a little bit. But here it's contrasting the promise in the Old Testament with the fulfillment in the New Testament. This tent was used for worship in the wilderness. And you can read all about that in Exodus chapter 26 and 27. That this physical tent relates to this heavenly reality. And what the arrival of Jesus Christ did was differentiate between the heavenly reality and this shadow, which was the tent in the wilderness where Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle and the tent of meeting and this ark were symbolic of this heavenly reality. So you take a look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It reads this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not into that temple, not into that tent, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The person of the Lord Jesus deals in the realm of reality, not just the shadows. And yet people seem to look to shadows all the time. We want to look for tents. We want to look for tabernacle. We want to look for sacrificial altar. We want to look for priests. We want to look for church. We want to look for rituals. We want to look at pastors to play the role of God. 
even though we all know that high priests, pastors, elders, ministry leaders all perish, and it is only Jesus Christ who is eternal, there's still a tendency to look to people. How many of us look to people for our deepest questions and answers rather than Jesus Christ himself? We all have the same Bible. We all have the same Holy Spirit. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And so you look at Jesus Christ, he offers himself. While every other high priest has to bring something to offer, those others always brought something with them. Now you look at the story of Abraham and Isaac back in Genesis chapter 22. Picking up that story in verse 2, it reads this. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now you skip down to verse 7. It reads this. And Isaac said to his father, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. We talked about typology a couple of weeks ago. And here's another typology as God did this with Jesus Christ, his only son, showing that Isaac was a type, back to Hebrews 7, on typology, a type of Christ in Genesis chapter 22. So that shadow in Genesis 22 to the reality that we read here in Hebrews. So a shadow of the one who offers himself as a sacrifice for sins. Let's get back to Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses spoke to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on a better promise. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant, because Jesus Christ is there. Verse 6, it reads that it is much more excellent. It is much better. According to verse 7, we needed a new covenant because if the old covenant was all that we needed, we wouldn't have needed to live through this other one. And it wasn't because the old covenant was bad. Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The fault was with them, the people, not his covenant. We couldn't live up to the old covenant because of our faultiness. So this new covenant was given to cover our faultiness through Jesus Christ. Not simply for Christians to think that all Christianity is, is to imitate Christ. You don't have to be a Christian to imitate Christ. 
but it is to be transformed by Jesus Christ. That our hearts are renewed, renovated, that our character is renewed, changed. People who imitate Christ and live moral lives can still experience guilt and shame because their heart hasn't changed, hasn't been changed by Christ. And so maybe their behavior has changed, but their heart has not. And it's not that the standards were lowered with the new covenant from this old covenant. Oh, I'll just make it easier. I'll make it easier for them. God, God, God always seeks to transform his people. He didn't make this covenant easier than the old. It's not like God went around and saying, you know what, instead of like sacrifices um, annually, uh, why don't you just do it every 10 years? And just make it easier. And then the Ten Commandments, instead of Ten Commandments, we'll just make it three. Make it easier for you. You just have to follow three. And then so this new covenant is just like easier for everyone to do. He's not doing that at all. Rather, God institutes a plan he had planned all along, a plan that transforms people from who they are to people who are complete. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The old covenant came from Sinai. It had its blessings, but this new covenant, those blessings were, were more complete in that they would be for everlasting. That, new, that old covenant was limited in what it could do. Because it was reliant on the physical. It was reliant on a temple. It was reliant on sacrificial altars. It was reliant on these physical animals' blood for sacrifice. What is in this shadowy Canaan, this old covenant, versus the reality of heaven at this new covenant? It is not dependent on washings, liturgies, sacrifices. It's not reliant on the shadow here we received an enlightened mind, a, a peaceful conscience, a purified heart in knowing the reality of Jesus Christ for eternity. Something about religious people is that religious people tend to hold on to external things pretty tightly without being transformed. And so rather than being worried about transformation in, in oneself, they're more concerned about how a program works or whether this ministry is still going to exist that has been going on for 20 years or how we do communion or how we do worship or how we do whatever. They're more concerned about those external things than they are with an actual change in someone's life. I think you've found this to be true just as I have, that it's pretty frustrating at times to talk to religious people. That they can say all the right things and they believe the right things and they know the right things about Jesus Christ, but it's just odd that when you're like dealing with them that they don't live that way. That they can talk about all these things, but you talk to them and they're not a kind person. They're not a hospitable person. They're not a loving person, but they can tell you all about Jesus. Much like demons. I don't know if you realize this about demons, but demons can probably do a lot better on a theology exam than you and I combined. They can probably answer Bible questions better than all of us combined, a single demon. Why? 
because demons actually have a very orthodox view of Christianity. They've been here a while. They know all the answers. Right? So they know it. What's the difference? They don't live it. They don't trust in obedience, Jesus Christ and God. But they know all the answers. And sometimes people can tend to be like this. They know all the answers. They can even live a moral behavior life. But you get on the inside and it's rotten. It's not obedient. It's not living a life of faith. And then when you get down to Hebrews verse 10 of chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews then goes on to quote Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 33 through 34 in verses 10 through 12 in Hebrews 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here's the quote. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You notice that God is not simply just asking you and I to change our behavior. Mind hearts. He's asking for a change from the inside out. That those laws are put into our minds, they are written into our hearts, and it's not simply about behavior modification or changing our outward actions. It is about life transformation, to have a peaceful mind, to have a clean heart. And this does not mean that we go on living perfect lives, but it would show that we are not congruent to what we truly believe if we don't live this way if we don't delight in, in doing God's will, since our hearts and our minds are to be renewed to live in this reality, it would not make sense. If we, it would be inconsistent if we were not living this way. So rather than thinking God's laws are condemning, as many people do, we can see that these laws are actually bringing us closer to God. I, I think this is some of the issues that people have. That, you know, if I, if I have this belief in Jesus Christ, if I move in this way, then I'm not really free. I, I'm trapped. I have to live this certain way, and I have to live this certain morality, and I have to do these certain things. And Do you enter marriage like that? If you do, you shouldn't get married, right? Like, you don't enter marriage like this. Oh, man, I'm just going to feel trapped. I feel trapped. I'm going to be with this person for the rest of my life. And I have to do certain things? You mean I can't just sleep around with anybody I want anymore? You, you mean like I have to like share my finances with him? Like I can't just spend it whatever? I, you mean like the kids we have? Like we have to take care of them together? We can't just like let somebody else do it? Like I have all these bounds. I just feel trapped. That's why a lot of people don't get married. Right? They, they don't want to feel trapped. They don't want, then that's great. Don't get married. You shouldn't do that. It's similar with our relationship with Christ. To enter into those bounds is not to feel condemned. It's to enter into a covenant relationship. And if you feel condemned, and if you feel trapped by entering into that, don't do it. It's that simple. See, I think a lot of people have this mentality is like, oh, if I, if I go into a relationship with Christ, then I have to do that. I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I have to do this, and I have to live this certain way, and I have to... It's not you have to. You get to. I get to be a husband to my wife. I get to be a father to my kids. 
I get to love her and I get, her, I get to have her love me back in a way that nobody else does, in a more intimate way that nobody else knows me and nobody else knows her the way that I do. I get to do that if I stay within my marriage covenant and I don't violate it. It's the same thing with the covenant with God and living in that. I get to know God personally and he gets to know me intimately, and I get to have this relationship with him. And so God puts these laws into our minds, he writes this into our heart, and we get to experience life fully, not in a shadow. We get to experience it the way that he created it. If you don't want it, if you feel trapped, don't enter it. That's your call. But if you do, just like any other relationship, like your marriage one, there's a covenant to be kept. You can't just live the way you used to live. There's a new covenant. Verse 11, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Each one in this new covenant will have their own intimate, personal knowledge, understanding of God. We can each know God. Through his word, not any longer reliant on a priest or a ritual or something religious that that is secretive or like I can't enter because no one could enter the Holy of Holies before. It was only the high priest and Jesus Christ tears that curtain so that you and I can enter in. It's not to say that we don't need each other anymore because we do, but it's to say that no matter how little the person is or how great the person is, we can all know the Lord. Each one of us. The curtain is torn. That people can all talk to God. I don't need someone to, to mediate with that anymore. I can go directly to God. Now some people can talk about God all day. But only God reveals himself within the heart of the person. And from the least of them to the greatest, each one can know God. And this is just so liberating. Because you and I aren't manipulated into knowing God. See, the church or the representatives of the church don't have something on you to know God. God can now reveal himself to you. There is no secrecy. There's no mystic thing happening, going on here. We all have the same word of God. We all have the same access through Jesus Christ. No ministry staff or elder or, or church leader has a leg up on anyone else with God. We can all know the same God because we all have the same word and the same Holy Spirit. And yes, we all have different paths and different maturity levels of spiritual growth, but there's no like inside track. We can all put the same effort to get there. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Knowing God personally is directly tied to the forgiveness of sins. To awaken us from this sinful state that we have. God's forgiveness cannot happen outside of his holiness. That's why there is a sacrifice. The innocent for the guilty in the old covenant. That this sacrifice is a shadow in the old covenant. And in the new covenant it is Jesus the innocent who is sacrificed for the guilty. Another typology. That Jesus dies in my place, in your place, so that... We can experience forgiveness of sins where our sins will be remembered no more. 
Now, there are some who say, you know, I don't, I don't need forgiveness of sins. I, I, I'm fine without it. I, I don't need it. You look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and it reads this. You shall love God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I can confess to you that I've already sinned. I've already fallen short with this because I can't tell you honestly that I've done that. Love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. I don't think I've done that. If you're not doing this, you need a Savior too. You need forgiveness of sins also. I mean, can any of us say that we've done this? All of my might, all of our soul, all of our heart? And I think some of the problems that people have with sin is that they want to think of something that is more universally thought of as sin, like murder. And so they think, oh, I haven't killed anybody. I don't, I, I, I'm not a sinner. I haven't killed anybody. I didn't steal anything. I didn't lie. Or, or things that uh, we kind of universally accept as sin. But it doesn't have to be a universally accepted sin to need forgiveness. There are many things that are sinful, like not loving God. And therefore, you and I need forgiveness Forgiveness from a God who is merciful and willing to forgive the sin and remember it no more. Thank God for the cross. Because you and I can't earn that salvation. Sure, we can put effort towards it through a transformed life, but we can't earn it ourselves. It is only Jesus Christ who paid for all of that. This is one of the issues that I think is kind of confusing the church. Yes, we are to do good. Yes, we are to battle injustice. We are to do all those things. But you don't have to be a Christian to do that. There are a lot of people in this world that are doing the same good things that Christians are doing. So what's the difference? I think the difference is some of those people believe that if they do more good than they do bad, then on that balance sheet, they're going to be with God and they're going to be in heaven. I have a question for them. Have you been keeping score since your birth? How do you even know? How do you know? If it is indeed that balance, that's a dangerous place to be because you don't have any account for it. How do you know if you're one off and then you're, you fail? There's no way for you to even know that. You don't keep inventory of that. Thank God for Jesus Christ. There's no record. It's just, he did it. That would be so tiring. right? And, and, and it would also be inaccurate. Because it's like that hearing test. You know that hearing test when you're like, oh, when, it, when you hear the thing, press the button. I've found that even if I don't hear things, I'm just like this. Because like, I think I hear it. And it might have been like left over from like the first beep. And it's just like ringing in my ear. And I'm just like, yeah, I hear something. I hear something. Like, it's not accurate. So are you always pressing this for good things or always pressing it for bad things? Like, you just don't know. Thank God. 
Thank Jesus Christ, who at the foot of the cross remembers sins no more. It's all taken care of. That's our good news. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. See, this, this old covenant, it, it couldn't take away sin. Only temporarily. It had to be done again. It, it couldn't save. It couldn't justify. It couldn't make people holy. Therefore, it was obsolete. And in this new covenant in Jesus Christ, everything is just like wide open. The curtain is torn. Nothing is hidden between old and new covenant. You, you and I can grow in maturity and in understanding without any surprises. There are no secret teachings. There are no secret rituals. You can't buy your way in to knowing God more. Like, isn't that awesome? Because then you don't have to be rich to know God more. You can just be you. He just accepts you the way you are. Jesus Christ sat. It's done. It's all done. You and I don't have anything to prove. You, don't, you and I don't have to like work ourselves to the bone proving ourselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. He's not standing like other priests. His work is done. We do have work to do, though. We do have effort to put forth. We do have this good news to share to share with others who don't have this. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. We ask, Lord, that um, our relationship with you would be deeper than just being moral, than just doing religious things, like going to church or giving, serving, taking communion, that, it, that it's something deeper with your laws written in our hearts, that our minds are knowing and understanding of who you are, that, that that relationship is deeper in that it's not necessarily what we are doing, but who we are becoming, that it is more than just imitation of you, God, that it is transformation. God, thank you for people in this church, and we pray, Lord, for any of those kind of spiritual struggles that may be happening, that you would reveal to them those answers through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through people that they have relationship with and communion with. In Jesus' name, amen.